We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And from Taijong by Donovan Smith. And great to be back. And our first stop today is the headline making allegations that the KMT's Ho Yoi, Eric Ju and Ma Ying Zhou, as well as the Taiwan People's Party's Kerwin Zhe, are under investigation for allegedly violating election laws during their attempts to form a presidential ticket alliance. Now, the investigation follows judicial complaints filed last month with the Taipei District Prosecutor's Office, and those complaints allege that the KMT and the TPP offered money or other things, objects, possibly we don't know yet, in an attempt to persuade the other side to accept their respective ideas as to how an electoral alliance should play out. The complaints were filed by Taipei Republic Office Director Chili Chen and attorney Huang Dai Ying. Now, they have alleged that the two political parties agreed on targets and conditions and on how they would divide political and government appointments if the now defunct alliance won the election. Kerwin Jerdo claimed last month that he was offered 200 million US dollars to drop out of the presidential race and serve as Ho Yoi's vice presidential candidate. Now, the KMT is needlessly say slamming the prosecutor's office for opening such an investigation, saying the claims stem solely from the failure of groups and individuals to understand the practice of political parties negotiating to form a coalition government. So, Brian, do you think this is just hot air, this case, and the prosecutors thought, we'll open anyway to keep everyone quiet, or do you think possibly there's something down there going on? Yeah, so the people that filed this case are pan-green activists, and they've been active on issues regarding Taiwanese independence and uh, quite vocally opposed to the KMT. And so this strikes as more of a political stunt uh, more than anything else to try to criticize the Pat Blue camp. Uh, it is true that there was some discussion of how to uh, kind of divide up who would take what with regards to forming a coalition or a joint ticket. But I think it's also unlikely that the prosecutors would go beyond a certain extent. After all, there's the desire to avoid being seen as uh, trying to target political opponents, particularly for the current government. And so in terms of judiciary, maybe there was, uh, maybe there, there are going to be allegations of wrongdoing, but I think this is fairly common in Taiwanese politics. I think it's more hot air than anything else. So Donovan, hot air. Yeah, I, I think Brian's right here. I mean, fundamentally, negotiations are made within both within political parties and with, in this case, with other political parties on how you know power is going to be divvied up. Now, it might actually be technically, according to the law, illegal. Um, you know, as Brian noted, these are pan green activists. Uh, Chili Chen is leaving is leading the charge on this one, and you know, the, this is. Um, the Tang Yun soup scenario, where um, you know they they claim that what's happening is is that the deal on the table was to buy off or to present some kind of offer whereby somebody doesn't run, and that is technically illegal. Um, now it didn't actually happen; it didn't actually go through. But even the discussion theoretically could be illegal. But you know, in the past, you're going to have negotiations on you know who you know who are we going to run as the speaker, uh, you know, speaker of the legislature, and so on and so forth. Uh, so yeah, I, I agree. I don't think this, that they're going to the prosecutors. I, I don't think are going to really go after this seriously. But Brian, do you think this is also an attempt to muddy the waters to dissuade voters from voting for the KMT or the TPP? 
Yeah, I do think so. Uh, because, for example, if it is seen as the two parties, the TPP and KMT, are not exactly transparent, that might dissuade some voters from turning out for them, uh, accusing them of secret backroom negotiations in a way that is not transparent to the public. And perhaps that tele- televised meeting in which they all fell out did not really help either, with Terry Goh saying that they shall go to his hotel room and talk things over, uh, seemingly wanting to avoid the cameras. Uh, it will become more of an issue, though, if Coenja continues to bring up an accusation that the KMT try to pay him off, because then it does uh, warrant a further investigation. And so that could become more of an object of political controversy, but only if he continues to bring that up. And Donovan, do you think the KMT had a point when it said basically certain groups and individuals may not fully understand the practice of a coalition government? Well, it actually has kind of happened here before. Um, you know, when Chen Sui-bian came in, he had a KMT premier uh, initially, um, so it, it's not actually totally unprecedented here. Uh, the difference is is that this time it's there were there were two parties o- openly negotiating about wor- working on a coalition government, whereas previously it was individuals aligned with an opposition camp or independents. Um, again, mind Joe has an independent, uh, you know. Uh, uh, Han Guoyu, when he ran for president, uh, you know, his vice presidential candidate was uh, officially not part of a, a political party. But, uh, you know, the, the, the difference here is that it was two parties openly negotiating, and that's what makes it, makes it a little bit different. But again, it's not as unprecedented as people try to make it sound. And the DPP this past weekend opened its national campaign headquarters in Taipei, which will serve as a base for operations ahead of the January 13th ballot. The event was party heavyweight studied. Anyway, lots of them there. And campaign office director Chen Shijong, he of the former Ministry of Health, greeted some 10,000 supporters at the opening ceremony, saying the upcoming campaign will involve all party members working towards securing victory in the presidential election. President Tsai Ing-wen and several other DPP bigwigs also attended the opening at the campaign headquarters and now while the DPP was throwing a rather big bash to mar the opening of said campaign headquarters KMT chairman Eric Jew was telling reporters that his party is seeking to run the cheapest ever presidential election campaign. That statement follows reports that fundraising for Ho Yo and his running mate Jiao Xiao Kung has not been quite successful as they KMT had hoped and donations have fallen far short of expectations. Now according to the KMT chairman the party will set a new record for the least amount of money spent on an election campaign and is set to rely heavily on the goodwill of friends and supporters. He also said that Hoyoe's main campaign headquarters will not raise funds and instead basically accept small donations from independent voters and grassroots supporters. The KMT chairman also said that local campaign offices will be funding the rallies by themselves. So, Donovan, a bit of a turnout for the books there. Yeah, and now here's the thing that uh, that most people don't realize about the KMT is that for the last few years, they after the Ill-Gotten Gains Act was passed, they you know they had all those ass- the KMT had all those assets they seized uh, from the outgoing Japanese at the end of World War II. They also uh, commandeered uh, certain assets uh, within the country, and of course, then it was effectively a one-party state. So the government would give a lot of things to the KMT. Now, those ill-gotten gains uh, have been legally sequestered by the government. The, you know, they, the, the KMT no longer has asset, access to them. 
And, of course, the KMT used to be reported in the press as the world's richest political party. Now, here's the thing. They've been actually, in their financial reports, they're still claiming those assets. They're still claiming income from those assets. The reality is, is that they're holding on to 19.7 billion NT in uh, in liabilities, or that's over 600 million U.S. dollars in liabilities. And so, effectively, if they don't win this election and overturn the Ill-Gotten Gains Act, they are over half a billion U.S. dollars in the hole. Now, the major companies in the last few elections, and I followed this, have been moving their donations toward the DPP, which is counterintuitive because historically the KMT uh, has been considered more friendly to large corporations. And also, a lot of these corporations have business interests in China, and the KMT is considered more open to a business and trade with China. But a lot of these companies figured that, figured that the KMT couldn't win, and so they started putting their money in to the KMT. So the KMT, I'm sorry, the DPP has become, uh, has actually start, has gotten more uh, corporate donations in the last few election cycles than the KMT has. So the KMT not only is holding on to massive liabilities, but pretending by its uh, financial filings that it still has income and assets that it no longer has access to. It's basically living in a giant lie. So fundamentally, the KMT is a massive problem. And if their fundraising, uh, you know, they've come out and said their fundraising is sh- is short, then they are in serious, serious trouble. And so when you hear that, you know, local candidates are having to fund their own campaigns, you know the party is in serious trouble. Yeah, that's right. And so it's to be seen what the financial future of the KMT is. Uh, in past occasions, they have sometimes gotten money from loans, for example, from Terry Goh, uh, through a loan facilitated through his mother, if I recall correctly. And that's not the case this time, because Goh split off from the KMT and ran as an independent. And so maybe there is a pattern, too, in which one can point to how the KMT has not managed its relationship with people that can help it out financially very well. Uh, and so that raises a lot of questions. I mean, it's also just this uh, long-term financial issue for the KMT. But in past years, there have also been reports of the central government, uh, central party administration, sorry, and local uh, party chapters sort of fighting over finances, in which the personal grudges of the leadership uh, in the party central lead to funds not being distributed to campaigns or not a lot of leading into the support. And so this is a question for the KMT. But in the meantime, it tries to tout this as a kind of asset or that it's deliberately running the cheapest campaign possible. It just seems like trying to cover over this massive issue. But then regarding the issues fundraising, I kind of wonder if this reflects then the lack of enthusiasm around Hoyoi from the KMT party base, that they couldn't get people that are traditionally donors to uh, contribute this time around. With Zhao Shaogang now being the vice president, perhaps he could appeal to such people, but it's already a bit late in this campaign cycle, with uh, around 40 days out. And Donovan, do you think that Zhao Shaogang could campaign to get more funding for his campaign? Yeah, I mean, him and his blue fighters, I think, actually probably could help raise money in a, in a serious way. Now, what's interesting is is that uh, before the ticket was announced with Zhao Shaokang uh, as the VP candidate and uh, Dan Hanguoyu as the number one on the party list, which means that the, presumably the KMT is going to put him uh, up for uh, legislative speaker, before bringing those two in, 
self-identified uh, KMT supporters in most polling were showing only about two-thirds to 70% of self-identified uh, KMT supporters supported Hoyoe. Now, once they brought those two in, it firmed up the base. And now, uh, roughly 90%, according to most polling, plus or minus a few percentage points, around 90% of self-identified KMT supporters now support uh, Hoyoe as the candidate. Um, so those have brought up the numbers significantly, and now, of course, you know, by bringing, consolidating the pan blue base, you've now got, uh, you know, uh, Hoyoe is breaking out ahead of Koenja in the polls. Now, obviously, uh, Zhao Shaokang, uh, head of the Fighting Blues, and Han Guoyu, who has, you know, his, his famous fan, uh, you know, Han fan base, they probably could raise money, but I haven't actually seen uh, much activity on their part in actually doing so. So I kind of feel like uh, Eric Jew, the, you know, the KMT chair, is not necessarily making very good use of these, uh, you know, now conscripted assets in into the party and into the campaign structure to raise money. So I'm a little bit surprised by that. And of course, Brian, they also have Wang Jingping, who of course they could send out to raise money. That's right. There's that as well, appealing to maybe a slightly different demographic. But uh, I think this issue actually goes back to the bizarre nature of uh, this election cycle in terms of deciding and announcing candidates. A VP uh, announcement could have come earlier and maybe tried to fundraise earlier, but uh, it was quite delayed because they were still fighting over where they were lined with the TPP or not until the very last moment. And so the KMT didn't have the kind of usual pattern of announcing a VP pick and then having a publicity cycle around that, in which maybe you can call for more contributions. And so I think just now it's a bit late. Jai was getting a lot of attention for uh, such a late announcement, and so that did sort of work out. But uh, I think it just reflects the many priorities the KMT has and how they're all very quite divided right now. And Brian, of course, the candidates had to declare their wealth this week. And of course, Mr. Jiao came out pretty much on top, so maybe he could lend him a few bob. Yeah, though, if Terry Goh was in the race, uh, that would be a different story. But uh, <laughs> yeah, perhaps, perhaps. Donovan. I thought that was interesting, but, um, you know, it's not surprising, you know, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of suspicions about how Zhao Shaokang came into ownership of, uh, you know, the Broadcasting Corporation of China um, and how he got his media position. And, of course, he's going he's gonna to have profited a lot from all of that. But, again, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't super wealthy. Um, none of the candidates, including, you know, Cynthia Wu on the KMT ticket from the Xinkong group family, uh, you know, the heiress there, none of them actually, all of them are mi- moderately wealthy. They're, they're lower upper class. None of them have the kind of financial power that would be necessary to, you know, uh, to help the KMT fill an over half a billion U.S. dollar hole. Not even close. So what are they going to do then, Brian? That's a good question, but uh, it is it is kind of funny to me when I see that, at least in Taipei, Terry Go ads are still ubiquitous everywhere. And he, I see the most ads for him of any candidate, and he's no longer in the race. Uh, so that may reflect how much money the, uh, he spent on this compared to, let's say, even the KMT. Do you think he could come back, though? Um, not at this point, but uh, maybe, maybe he can save up those ads for the future. <laughs> and meanwhile, as the campaigns are now in full swing, albeit with some more cheaply than others, and the DPP are basically 
going against the KMT and promoting different policies, and the TPP, of course, is being thrown in there and also promoting contrasting policies. The only thing the DPP and the KMT actually agree on is the need to woo younger voters. Now, Kerwin Jur has, of course, managed to garner support from a good slice of the island's younger voters, as polls have been showing. But since the failure of the KMT-TPP election alliance, things might have taken a turn. Well, they have taken a turn because Kerr is now not number two, he's number three. And the DPP and the KMT are now looking to steal as many of these younger voters as possible in the run-up to the ballot, Brian. So, the younger vote. Big splashy article in the New York Times this week and a couple of the local papers ran with it. But they're all saying that it's an important part of the vote. We need young, we need more young people, we'll win. It is one of those things, uh, one question, because there's often that discourse. Uh, however, older people outnumber younger people in Taiwan, and even with the wave of youth participation in politics one has seen in past years, voter turnout for young people is usually lower. And so demographically, maybe that's not the uh, that's not how it works out. However, it is interesting because parties do want to present a useful image, uh, fielding younger candidates or using younger candidates as a face for a much older party. That's true of both the KMT and the DPP, uh, because one does not want to seem like a geriatric, out-of-date party. Uh, and so it's to be seen. I mean, Co stood out, or at least received, as having a support for young people. And I think anecdotally, that definitely seems to be the case. I mean, seeing his campaign rallies uh, during past election cycles, they are full of young people in a way that the other uh, candidates for the DPP and KMT are not. Uh, however, it's a question if uh, he will alienate young people. I'm not too sure younger people would agree with some of his views, for example, on China, uh, pushing through the CSSTA or building a bridge between uh, China and Taiwan in Jingmen, or his uh, kind of criticism of gay marriage or at least his personal opposition towards it and some of his past comments that were interpreted as homophobic. Uh, and so it is a question of uh, a kind of semi-populist candidate and their appeal to young people. But if his stances suddenly became clear, if there was some event that made that clear, it is possible he would alienate such young people. And so I think perhaps people are questioning if that uh, televised fallout would be such an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, Brian's right here. I mean, fundamentally, the younger demographics, there's just they're less numerous and they tend to have, outside of the 2020 election, uh, historically they have had a far lower turnout, uh, you know, on election day. Um, because often they're students or they're, you know, they're working in another city where their household registration is not. And so to, to be able to vote, they have to go back to wherever their household registration is. And so, you know, they have to pay the costs of transportation when transportation is often very tight because, you know, voting day, um, you know, everyone's on the move. So, you know, so how, how, you know, how effective, you know, or how powerful this block is in this election remains to be seen, but it's probably going to be a lot lower than, you know, than Co would hope. Um, 2020 was an exception. The voter turnout among uh, young voters was more or less on par with the older demographics, but that was because the the younger voters had a particular fear of uh, Dan Hangwoyu becoming the president. Um, You know, he he instilled a, a level of fear and concern among younger voters that they came out to vote in opposition to him. Now, What's interesting is Coenza just came out uh, the other day and said that he now, um, you know, wants to follow more or less follow uh, Tsai Ing-wen's foreign policy with a little bit more openness toward China. 
uh, this, you know, the, the services packed with China, unlike Hoyoi, who has come out and said that he wants to go ahead with Maingjo's negotiated version of that, he says he wants to first put in the oversight uh, law of, uh, for governing uh, cross-strait trade, uh, that was that has been discussed but never passed. He wants to do that first, and then maybe negotiate some kind of new services pact, which is nowhere near as extensive as the one negotiated under Maingjo. The one negotiated under Maingjo would open up uh, everything from publishing, advertising, movie theaters. You know, essentially, you know the. The the Chinese Communist United Front would be able to dominate and own and operate media here in Taiwan um, under that pact. Uh, now, whether or not could would include these in a newly negotiated services pact or not is unclear because he's been quite fuzzy on this. So, you know, I he, the the problem I think that, that a lot of people may have coming into this election as they start focusing more and more on what exactly stands for may come under scrutiny and I suspect that a lot of younger people are going to just walk away with more questions than answers as to where he stands and they're not going to be as enthusiastic as in 2020 to actually show up and vote. And Brian, I mean, do there's any stigma here amongst young people whether they if they support the DPP, they're more more likely to go out and say, hey, I support the DPP. Or the ones that support the KMT are more likely to keep a bit quiet about it because they may be a bit embarrassed or they maybe they'll think their friends won't talk to them anymore. Uh, I think that is the case. I mean, the KMT has struggled with uh, appeals to young people and it's not really managed to get young people to kind of come out in force or embrace the party identity in, in some way, whereas the DPP has done that. Uh, the DPP, for example, is leaning into a strategy that they did the last few elections, too, of having a slate of younger candidates that they kind of prop up and uh, use as a flagship for the campaign as a whole. I mean, the DPP is running many older candidates. It is a party that is run by veteran politicians. But then having a younger slate of candidates they can brand the party using uh, is something that's done. And so this time around, it's not the democracy front line as with 2020. It's the quote unquote, the generation. And so this is some of the same candidates from the past that are still running or past uh, independents that have now joined the DPP, uh, or in the case of Miao Boya, who is outside of the DPP still. Uh, Freddie Lim, for example, despite having been historically a independent or a member of the New Power Party, has joined the DPP, though he is not running and is uh, just campaigning this time around in support of other candidates. And so there is that. I think particularly with regards to Ko, though, I mean, we see to what extent he was banking on new support with how he was hoping to rely on uh, mobile polling for the uh, deciding who is the presidential or vice presidential candidate in the alignment with the KMT. But the KMT, I think, also just has not really come up with a strategy to appeal to younger people. They do have some younger promising politicians, such as Xu Xiaoxing, but they don't promote them enough, or uh, they just don't have a coherent strategy using younger candidates that are in the party to seem like a less of a geriatric party. Yeah. What's interesting is actually the KMT has been bending over backwards to try and bring in uh, younger voters. Um, you know, Eric Chu, the, the KMT chair, he changed the rules um, to favor younger candidates for uh, city and county councilors to favor younger voters. Their average age on their party list is 47, apparently. 
Um, but then they turned around and went with Zhao Shaokang as their vice presidential candidate, and they went with uh, Dan Hanguoyu as their part, number one on their party list, neither of whom are exactly fresh faces for the youth crowd. Um, so the, yeah, the KMT can't really... has tried but failed, I think, to break through to younger audiences. But, I, you know, I deliver lectures sometimes at uh, local universities, and I've talked to the students, and they tend to go for the TPP, not the DPP. The DPP to them they find to be kind of stale or corrupt or older, and, you know, when asking them, well, why do you support Coenza and the TPP, and they talk a lot about how they get their messaging from social media uh, and that it's fresh, it's direct, it speaks to them. Um, they find it a, a lot, they feel that it, it is a lot more of an honest message. And, and so it, it has been resonating. But as Brian noted, they, you know, Cohen has a past of, of comments that I think women against women and uh, homophobic and, you know, things that are not necessarily very popular with younger voters. And so, for example, you know, in the under 30 crowd, um, Cohen's support among women holds up, but for women over 30, it's about 10 percentage points down over male support within that demographic, in large part because of his previous comments on women. So, um, you know, I, I think he does have, I think the TPP has has had a stronger hold on the younger vote and Coenja uh, than the DPP does. Um, but if we get to the, and this is a big if, because Coenja is a very unpredictable character. He may bounce back. But if he continues to slide, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of the younger vote either stay home or shift to the DPP. But that would be reluctant if they did that. Yeah, so what is quite interesting is that the TPP has been very successful on TikTok slash Douyin, and the other parties have vacated this position. So I definitely think there is something to be said for the savvy use of social media by the TPP. And this then goes back to these questions for particularly the DPP, because they don't want to gauge on such platforms because of the link to China. Uh, I think that it's also the, of course, anti-establishment message of the TPP. For younger uh, individuals, the DPP has been in power, the DPP has been in power their entire lives, and they don't really remember a period in which the KMT was in power. And so the KMT does not seem like a real threat, and in the meantime, the DPP is the establishment. And so that's a big shift, but... uh, Eight years from, let's say, the Sunfire Movement to the present, nine years rather, that is actually quite a significant period of time. And so that is another generation. And it does seem like, based on some survey polling, it could be that Gen Z is a little less depoliticized. And perhaps that does make the TPP's uh, message uh, more appealing. And what about, of course, the DPP, Brian, have been in power for eight years, stagnant wages, people can't afford to buy housing, there's questions about employment. Do you think young people can trust the DPP? Yeah, so people are unhappy about that because it has not been able to resolve these problems. And so one does see that all of the major parties agree these are problems, but it is the DPP that is in power. So its inability to address this as the incumbent works against it. 
And political pundits this week were busy predicting that the DPP will lose its legislative majority in January's election, with Taiwan People's Party presidential candidate Ke Wen-je telling reporters that his party is aiming to double its seats to 10 in January's legislative elections. And speaking at an online campaign event, Ke said if the TPP meets that goal, it will hold the balance of power in the legislative UN, as he's claiming is expected, neither the DPP nor the KMT will win an outright majority. And according to Kerr, he's optimistic about the TPP's chances of winning the 10 seats. Now, all five incumbent TPP lawmakers represent at-large constituencies, and Kerr says the party this year is seeking to be more competitive in the single-member district vote. So, Brian, the TPP going out to get actual local constituency votes there, and the DPP and the KMT maybe not getting the majority in the legislative UN. So it is a question then if the TPP will hold the balance of power there. But I think what's interesting to note is that the TPP has not to date won a legislative uh, district race. And so this is a new challenge for it. And particularly when it comes to the party list vote, the outcome of the negotiation of the KMT could perhaps have an effect there, because particularly with the party list and party ID, uh, especially for a newly formed party, the perception of their presidential candidate will really strongly impact the uh, performance of the party list. And so I think it's quite a question to be seen. I definitely think the TPP's chances with getting seats on the party list vote were higher before this debacle. Uh, And so it is a question, but the TPP does want to expand power. The phrase kingmaker now continually comes up in Taiwanese politics, and Ko wants to position himself as that person. Uh, But I also kind of wonder to what extent in the future going forward he can control his own party, because these are people that didn't join the party out of loyalty to him. They had pre-existing political careers. And some are questioning if his uh, leadership is effective, given his failures in negotiating with the KMT. Uh, the DPP, particularly seeing this as a point of weakness, has really uh, gone on the attack on this point, calling, for example, on TPP members to leave the party because Ko's leadership will lead them off of a cliff. And I think that's because what, that is what they perceive, that these two things are very linked. And so it's a very strategic move on their part. So, Donovan, I mean, do you, do you think the Taiwan People's Party will get the seats in the legislative UN to act as kingmaker? Or do you think voters will well, maybe sway to the KMT or simply continue to back the DPP? Well, okay, this is interesting because, I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of pundits are saying, as you noted, uh, that they expect that this time around no party will have a majority. And that isn't in quite, that is quite possible. But the thing is, is that when you kind of crunch the numbers, there's a very good chance that the NPP will, will lose their caucus. They currently have three seats. So, you know, there's a good chance that they will be out. So those three seats will go to either the DPP, the KMT, or the TPP. Now, as far as how, you know, what percentage of the party list uh, seats will go to the TPP, that's a very interesting question. It looks like they're probably a pretty safe lock at about six, um, five or six seats, but that they're at five now. So, you know, if they get six, seven, eight, maybe, now getting to 10 is going to be tough. That would mean they'd probably have to also win a, a district somewhere. And, for example, you know, I'm looking at the Taichung 1 uh, district here, and Taibiru is probably going to get crushed. Um, so I don't see that the any of the TPP candidates in the districts, they might win one, you know, maybe two, but... I think they're they're a long shot in any district race. They just simply don't have the candidates with the experience and the name recognition to make any serious impact. So of the 73 district seats and the six indigenous seats, 
those are largely going to go to DPP, KMT, and possibly some independents. And it's looking like uh, a lot of people are saying that of the kind of up in the air or split, uh, because there's a lot of uh, districts that where there's, you know, there's two candidates from, say, the pan-green side or from the pan-blue side where they're running against each other, so they have opposition from their own side within these districts. This is playing out more against the DPP than the KMT. So as it's looking now, and a lot can change between now and Election Day, it's looking like the DPP is going to lose some seats. There is, and the KMT may pick up a few seats. Um, that would put the KMT into the 40s, possibly. Um, but it, a lot of it depends on on how the TPP does. So everyone seems to be kind of betting that the DPP is not going to win an outright majority, which does seem likely. Um, the KMT is going to raise up from the 38 or so that they have now in the legislature up into the 40s, and the TPP may be able to play the role of kingmaker. A lot of people, one thing that a lot of people aren't talking about is that there's a lot of independent candidates running and it, it's if if you know a few of them win, who will they caucus with? And that we don't know yet. And Brian, what about those independent candidates? Do you see them actually becoming kingmakers themselves? Uh, it is a question. I mean, certainly individually not, but uh, it is. I think it, it, it plays a question as to who they would align with, and uh, I think it really depends on the candidate. Um, I think actually there's just a lot of uncertainty, but particularly uh, the view is that this uh, the outcome for the legislative race as a whole favors the Pan Blue camp in that sense, and so I do think the DPP is aware of that, and, and they have already kind of they're actually planning in the view that they will actually uh, not hold the majority, but in that sense perhaps they would be pleasantly surprised. I mean, it does depend on the outcome. And staying with election news now, we talked briefly about media impartiality in the election last week. But this week, the National Communications Commission announced that Public Television Service, the Chinese Television System and the Broadcasting Corporation of China have all pledged to produce fair, objective and, well, thorough news coverage of the election campaigns. Now, the pledge came amid concerns about KMT vice presidential candidate Zhao Xiaokang, who is the chairman and general manager of the BCC, and PTS board director Karen Xu, who also oversees CTS on behalf of the Public Television Service, and she's been nominated for one of the Taiwan People's Party's legislature at large seats. Now, the National Communication Commission says it's contacted the three networks to seek their assurances that it will treat all political parties and their candidates equally. Okay, Brian, media fairness when it comes to elections in Taiwan. You've only got to look at certain TV channels <laughs> to work out their top stories are all about a certain candidate. You know, this really doesn't happen. Yeah, it is quite interesting because particularly in Taiwan, there's the political culture of recruiting media personalities to run for office or the tendency for media outlets to favor certain candidates quite visibly. I mean, the big example is CTI TV and their favorable coverage of Han Goryu when he was in the running uh, to try and become the KMT presidential candidate with 70% of content all about him. And so now there's a question of heads of media companies or people that work in them running for office. And uh, it occurs at a high level here in terms of the uh, people that own or, or chairs of companies with Zhao Shogong, for example. 
example. But then there is also just the tendency, I think, for candidates to often have media backgrounds, former journalists or anchors that already have some recognizability. Uh, recruiting them to run for office may make sense for political parties. And so that's come up here, but uh, it is a question then of media fairness. I do think, again, the government will try to avoid targeting specific people with the view that then, uh, to avoid the view that this uh, is them targeting specific political groups they don't like. But uh, it is a challenge, I think. Donovan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the uh, the NCC, the you know National Communications Commission, I believe it, it is, uh, is uh, highly is viewed in the pan blue camp as essentially an evil arm of the DPP. Um, so most pan blue supporters view the NCC as highly biased against them, and so. There's a lot of hostility there, and I think the NCC is going to be very um, sensitive to this. Uh, they did um, remove a CTI TV, which, as Brian noted, at one point they were devoting over 70% of all their news content to uh, Dan Hangwoyu, as you know, when he was running for president. That that's not just their coverage of politics; it was all of their coverage. Um, and so the NCC removed them from cable TV and MOD. Now this actually, and this is something that the Pan Blue Camp has not really brought up, but this may actually have been a benefit for CTI TV because now they're just on YouTube and now there's a whole raft of regulations that they no longer have to worry about. So they have actually a free hand to do pretty much any kind of coverage they want now that they're no longer on cable TV and on MOD, which of course has less and less viewers, and of course YouTube is growing. So ultimately, CTI TV may have been given something of a leg up as a result of that. But And then of course there are a lot of questions about Mirror Media and their news channel and, and that process. So, so at this point, I don't think that the NCC, to get back to your question, uh, after I've meandered quite a bit here, um, is that I don't think they're going to take a very heavy hand on this because there is so, so much opposition and it, it, there's so much sensitivity around the NCC, NCC that I think they're, they're going to take a very conservative and very cautious approach. Yeah, absolutely. And so again, that is the uh, there will be criticism because I think the NCC does not enjoy this phenomenon, let's say, of media personalities and having networks at their disposal. But then it is a particular sense of time. I mean, it's interesting the way that uh, the NCC went after CTI TV, for example, when there have been allegations of links to the China's uh, Taiwan Affairs Office or funding from the Chinese government. Instead, it avoided that and sought to target when it uh, seemed to have very biased coverage of KMT candidates, claiming, for example, the crowd count at Han Guru's mayoral inauguration was much larger than it actually was. And so even then, when it did go after networks, it stuck to the safe approach, what is uh, not as uh, politically controversial or uh, sort of create controversy in that sense. And so that is, I think, uh, a sign of the cautiousness of the the NCC. Yeah, in the Financial Times, uh, Catherine Hill, uh, she, she was sued for this, and but they eventually dropped the lawsuits. Uh, but in the Financial Times, uh, she got multiple sources from the Want Want China Times Group and CTI, who share cross-ownership. She got multiple sources who said that they were actually getting direct orders on content from the Taiwan Affairs Office from China. 
and even then, there's still not uh, exactly. That's not exactly the thing that NCC went after them over. So that reflects the sensitivity, I think, of such charges. Because it could open a whole can of worms, Brian. Yeah, that's and right. And backfire quite badly on them. And before we go this week, we'll move completely away from the elections and we'll talk about the Central Bank, which on Monday of this week called on the public to stop holding their loose and spare change at home and instead spend it or deposit it into their bank accounts. Now, according to the bank, such moves will help both the island's coffers and the environment. As the bank says, when people don't use their coins and leave them at home, it has to produce more to meet demand, which raises costs and also produces more carbon emissions. The bank says one thing people will do to help protect the ecosystem is to, and this is a quote from the local media, gather coins from their heavy wallets and those hidden in corners of their homes and spend them. So Brian, we should be spending our change because apparently it affects the environment. Uh, Yeah, that's right. I'm one of these people that has a lot of difficulty getting rid of change, so sure, that would help, but uh, it'd be nice also if there's easier ways to get rid of coins. Uh, In my local MRT station, they have one of those machines now for putting coins in and you can deposit it directly into your bank account. But I was very disappointed to find that you can't just dump your coins into it. You have to put them in, otherwise the machine gets stuck. So uh, that doesn't really help me. So you can't stand there for an hour? You haven't got an hour to kill Brian standing no, in front of No, unfortunately the not. Okay. Um, you could take it to the bank and they will do that for you, but uh, it just seems like a bit of a pain to wait uh, in line and go to the bank and do that. And yeah. <laughs> you could always buy your food with the coins, Brian. True, true, but I have too many one NT coins. That's uh, part of the issue. Ah, Donovan, so what do you do with your spare change, mate? Uh, I hoard them. I have tens of thousands of NT in coins um, stored in uh, the containers that whiskey bottles come in. And, um, you know, I'm just doing that despite the central bank, of course. You know, that, that's been my long-term plot to foil their evil schemes. And destroy yeah. the environment. Yes. But you haven't taken to a, How many years haven't you taken to the bank for? I don't know, 10, 15. <laughs> I tell you, I used to collect my change up, and I once did it, I collected it out for two and a half. Usually, every, every one and a half, two years, I'd take it to the bank. And I get on average about 30,000, 30,000, 40,000 NT in deposited my account from change. But one year, I didn't do it for over two and a half years, and I managed to carry, well, I didn't carry it very far because I had to get a taxi, the bag was so heavy. And I got to the bank, and they changed it for me, and I had. 66,483 NT in change. Yeah, that's quite a bit. I have something like that in in change. I don't save all of my change, um, but I save some of it. And so, yeah, I probably have about 60,000, 70,000 in change. But Brian's taking this seriously. I mean, how much change do you think people are holding in Taiwan? And does it really hurt the environment that much? That's a good question, actually. Uh, I mean, I don't know the stats, but uh, it is it is a society that's very cash-dependent compared to other places in the world. And so, if not coins, there's still paper bills that are very widely being used. And sure, more payments are happening now, but it's still not on the scale of other places. And that's where we have to leave it here on Taiwan This Week This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And from Taijong by Donovan Smith. Always great to be here. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out the Taiwan This Week podcast on your favorite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.